This is Cutie Clinic. Hi, I'm Jack Cush with Room Now. Cutie Clinic is brought to you by Room Now Live 2024. In fact, January 27th and 28th. That's like six weeks away. Now's a good time to register and be sure you register for your hotel because the rates go up after January 5. Today's case is what to do with the ANA positive consult. This is a no-brainer for most rheumatologists. If you're smart like me and many others, you've got a template so that when this consult comes in, you fill in three or four blanks, the age, the background medical history, the medicines they're taking, the story reads the same, sent to you by the primary care because the ANA was positive, the ANA was drawn because of X, Y, and Z reasons. Uh, there's no ample evidence uh, of lupus, does not meet criteria for lupus, no reason to worry, ANA positivity is common. Thank you very much for this consult. But the real question is, how many of those ANA positive consults really do have real underlying autoimmune disease? Well, the numbers should make you pause and worry. Um, while the Lupus Foundation and others that are in the lupus look at me business will tell you there's 5 million people with lupus or some crazy number. Um, the real epidemiologic facts are that there's somewhere between 240 and 280,000 people in the United States who have SLE. That the proportion of those who have really bad SLE is probably 10% that might need brand new therapies. Um, I've always quoted that, you know, since ANAs are done, um, and devised with a 5% um, false positive rate in normal controls. That means 5% of the population, uh, healthy population, should have a positive ANA. Given your population where you live, you should be able to figure out how many. Where I live, that's about 38 million people with uh, a positive ANA. That's very different than the 239,000 who actually have lupus. So, you know, the numbers are staggeringly in favor of your ANA positive consult going absolutely nowhere. But the patient who gets referred to the rheumatologist, it's, it's, it's enriched for the potential for disease. I was working once with a bunch of great um, researchers, uh, Virginia Pasquale and other people at the Baylor Research Institute. And we were doing microarrays on lupus and Stills disease and whatnot, looking at the um, RNA expression profiles of disease states and coming up with some interesting data. And as a control, I would provide a number of ANA positive fibromyalgia patients or ANA positive who didn't have lupus patients. And when those were run and compared to people with lupus and other autoimmune diseases, you know, 5%, sometimes a little bit more of those people had the exact same gene expression profile as someone who had clear cut lupus. Which led me to believe that, you know, there's some people in here, one out of 20, maybe one out of 10, who will, in fact, progress to autoimmune disease, if not lupus. The actual numbers on autoimmune disease in the population is about 8%. One in 12 women, one in 20 males. Um, these are 2005 numbers, and that means that there's at least 23.5 million with autoimmune disease, that's pretty close to my 38 million who have a positive ANA. So the question is, um, what do you do with this patient? 35 years old, 
uh, sent by the primary care, has a positive ANA. He did the ANA because the patient has arthralgias or because, you know, they complain of fever or because of whatever. And the question is, do you say, uh, pat him on the back, say your gut fine, call me when you get these three lupus symptoms and you give them some, uh, ex- some guidance. I think the point is that not all ANA positive consoles should be sent out into the world never to come back. I think that you need to reappoint some of these patients, maybe as much as 10%, so that you'll pick up at least half of those that will have real disease. Who do you reappoint? It's going to be people who have more specific symptoms for lupus, not arthralgia, right? Not feeling bad, not fatigue. But if they're losing hair and have patches of alopecia or there's hair on the pillow in the morning, that's specific. If they had a clear-cut documented episode of serositis that was unexplained, if they have cytopenias that are not um, clear on what the etiology of that is, I would bring that patient back in three or six months and sort of do another clinical check. Not necessarily do another ANA. That's not going to make me any more helpful. I'm not more likely to bring them back if they have 1 in 2560 compared to 1 in 160. I don't think that the strength of the titer is as predictive as we would like it to be. I think the pattern is more predictive with homogeneous and speckled being poorly predictive and the other ones nuclear and uh, centromeric and certainly um, a rim pattern which you don't see very much of anymore being much more specific i think you have to think who you're going to bring back you know this topic is going to be discussed at room now live by dr david carp chief of rheumatology at UT Southwestern, where I heard him give this fabulous lecture on preclinical disease, using lupus as an example, and using different set of nomenclature as to how we should consider these patients. And he has great data about, not, about how these people could have disease and what are the studies that show who we might um, treat, who we might watch more closely, who's going to evolve into lupus in the future. This is going to be covered by Dr. Karp on our Saturday, 27th, uh, 4, 4 o'clock or so, um, end of day session on lupus. Be there and enjoy this lecture at Room Now Live. Hi, I'm Jack Cushwood, Room Now, and this is QD Clinic. QD Clinics are lessons from the clinic, and QD Clinics is brought to you by Room Now Live. I want to talk about medical education and rheumatology education and I about six months ago had a conversation with two fellows at a meeting that we were attending and I asked what do you think of this conference I could as well have asked what do you think of the last conference and they said the same thing they said oh it's it's good it's okay it's uh you know the speakers are good and and it's great to get together with friends at these meetings, and certainly you can't get go wrong when the meeting's in Acapulco or in these surroundings. I mean, they had a lot of, uh, of nice things to say about the meeting. We have a lot of good meetings, honestly. And I, I'm lucky I get to speak at a lot of them and, and meet you at a lot of them. But I want you to know that, you know, for like the last 30 years, I've given like, I think a thousand or I think it's actually many hundreds of lectures and been to many meetings. I spent a lot of time in the last... 10 years thinking about what makes a great meeting and uh and in doing so came up with room now live um trying to design it as a better experience for you so um i think that if i were to tell you what i think is a great meeting 
I think a great meeting has really skilled faculty giving expertly delivered shorter lectures with lots of Q&A time. And it's even better if I can, you know, rub elbows with the faculty at lunch and at breaks um, uh, by going to the meeting. Of course, now some of you will do virtual and, and you'll miss out on that opportunity. And best of all, that I don't have to shut down my practice for three days or a week to attend what I think is my annual meeting. We go to these meetings often because they're convenient, because their amount of time that we have. I've gone to these before. I'll go to them again, either their cost, etc. But I think there are many factors that go into what is a great meeting. And that's what I've designed along with Artie Kavanaugh. You know, we, we sat, we talked about where we wanted to do the meeting, how we wanted to do the meeting. And, and this is what we think is important about meetings. One, time off from work. You know, you're busy, we're all busy, uh, taking time off for work is lost income. And while that's sometimes a time that you need off from work, you, I mean, there's this drive to be productive. Room Now Live is a day and a half. It's all day Saturday, half day Sunday. You can be in and out and not miss work. Convenience is a factor. And the fact that you can, you know, go to someplace easily or attend easily is important to you. So, the meeting's in Dallas. It's a short flight, a short drive, a quick internet log on if you're a virtual learner, December 27th, I'm sorry, January 27th, January 28th. Lecture link's important. I give a lot of lectures. I love it when the organizers give me an hour for my lecture because I can wax on and show 65 slides and, and dazzle you with everything I know. But what I know doesn't really matter. It's what you know. These meetings are supposed to be about you, the learner. So for that, we need shorter, better lectures and more time for Q&A. So we only have 15 and 25 minute lectures. We demand our world-class faculty to get even better and hone their teaching skills and content delivery into shorter, more powerful lectures. Again, these can be supplemented by slides, questions, handouts, and an abundance of audience interaction, which leads me to my last point, I think, which is expanded interactivity. You know, we do two-hour blocks on major subjects like PSA or, or um, vasculitis or, or uh, spondylitis, and, but in that, I want them to give three 25-minute lectures and five minutes of Q&A in each one of those, and then 30-minute panel, which means in a two-hour block, you're going to have 45 minutes of audience interactivity. That's 37 plus percent of the time is devoted to you and what you think and how you practice and getting confirmation from the experts in the field. Again, having access to the materials is standard now in conferences that you go to, you know, downloadable handouts and whatnot. But we have pre-learned materials. We download the slides. We have takeaway summaries from our speakers. And, I, and we're doing something that no one else has. Post-meeting, there'll be a post-meeting digest, which will be um, something sent to you in the weeks following the meeting, which articles, videos, podcasts, about the session that you were in to get the, opinion, the, the, the view of others who were there, the experts who are reporting on this. And then lastly, you're going to receive access as a registrant to a bank of multiple choice questions derived from the meeting presentation. So over 100, maybe 130, maybe, I don't know if I can do even more, will be sent to you and these will be learning materials for you. And lastly, we're pretty proud of these step talks. They're really like TED Talks 
you know, 10, 15 minutes long, meant to be inspirational, informational, mini lectures, thought provoking. Again, these are highly informative and often unexpected topics that you'll find will be a great breakup to your day. Hope to see you at Room Now Live. It's a day and a half of enlightenment on the topics that I don't think you'll see at other meetings. Tune in for more Cutie Clinics. This is QD Clinic. I'm Jack Cush with Room Now. QD Clinic is brought to you by Room Now Live. Uh, a lot of great lectures, a lot of great speakers, Saturday and Sunday, January 27, 28, in Dallas or online at a desk near you. Today's case, a 39-year-old flight attendant, um, she comes in for an earlier-than-scheduled appointment. She has lupus. She says she's not doing well. Um, she thinks her rash has worsened. You notice this at the last visit. You increase your dose of hydroxychloroquine. She's having more joint pain. And the real question is, how are you going to assess whether this is a lupus flare, uh, whether this is controlled or uncontrolled disease, whether there's enough evidence in play that you're going to up your therapy, change your therapy, and whatnot. You know, the evidence is pretty strong that we're not that good at, at changing therapy in even in the face of active disease. And does that not really speak loudly on the issue of we probably don't have great tools for active disease? So I got to tell you what I think is the, are the things that we rely on that have been proven to be poorly predictive. And that would be change in autoantibody titer. Um a change or drop in complement levels, and proteinuria in patients who actually already have documented lupus nephritis. Yeah, I know we hang our hats on these things, but they really suck, to say the least. Complement levels and change in titers, I always teach that you have to spend like somewhere between four and maybe eight visits with a patient and monitor those you know, SM titers, double-strand DNA titers, C3 and C4 levels to see if they correlate with patient complaint and other objective evidence of worsening of disease. And honestly, in my practice, it's maybe 20% that I'm blessed, 20% of lupus, I'm blessed with the fact that those measures may correlate with activity, which means the vast majority of my patients, I'm stuck with good clinical judgment. You know, did they end up in the hospital? Were they hospitalized? You know, what happened? You know, under certain circumstances, you can, you can kind of predict that patient's going to flare, right? Pregnancy. You know, there's, there are problems of distinguishing lupus flare from pregnancy, but patients that with lupus, they often can get worse during pregnancy. Um, if they've had a recent change in medicines, well, presumably you were increasing their medicines because they weren't controlled in the first place, or... You're decreasing their medicines, and in fact, you're finding out you shouldn't have decreased their medicines, and now they're flaring. So there are certain setups that, you know, it's much easier to say, this is probably active disease, and I probably need to respond. You know, there are tools out there. There's the um, sleet eye, um, uh, a number of measures that have a, a point score to them, and if they're more than four points, or certainly eight or 12 points, oh my God, that's really active disease. There's the bilag from, you know, the UK, uh, the British Isles Lupus Activity Guide or whatever. And the problem is, uh, as a researcher, I've never understood the bilag. Uh, it's very predictive when it gets used appropriately by people who truly understand it. But that's really clinical trialists and not you and I. 
I believe that when lupus patients are getting worse, the decision is made easier by the fact that lupus, when it gets worse, is not unidimensional, meaning someone's not going to get worse only by having, you know, serositis only, or only by having a drop in just their um, platelet count. Usually, it's a multidimensional, um, multi-organ uh, effect with some symptoms and organs lagging behind others. But again, you know, someone newly diagnosed with lupus in the emergency room is not diagnosed only because they presented in renal failure. They're going to have plenty of criteria, right? So this is the case for um, assessing patients and being basically multidimensional in your assessment and the fact that we need better assessments. I think we're evolving to this. If you follow the work of uh, Andrea Fava and Michelle Petrie from Hopkins, they've got a lot of great information they've presented over the last two or three years. And we're going to have uh, Andrea Fava as one of our speakers in our lupus session on Saturday the 27th at 4.15 p.m. where he's going to talk about biomarkers in lupus. And biomarkers, I mean things that you're not measuring. And specifically, he's written a lot about IL-16, IL CD-163, CD-206 as, as proteins that you can measure in the urine. And guess what? They, they predict activity. They predict damage. They predict activity index, not chronicity index. They're way better than UPCR and the other things that you are currently hanging your hat on. I think this is going to be a great uh, talk from a great researcher, Andrea Fava at Room Now Live. Be there. Welcome to QD Clinic. Hi, I'm Jack Cush with Room Now. QD Clinic is brought to you by Room Now Live. Great speakers for great rheumatologists like you. Today's case is the unmet need in gout. Just think about it. You, could, you should be able to write me a list of five things right off the top of your head about the unmet need in gout. And if you can't, then you need to work on your gout. So this case is 55-year-old man um, who, let's just make it a woman, postmenopausal woman, right? Um, this actually was a man. Nine years of gout. Um, the patient is still not on urate-lowering therapy um, in spite of your instructing him or her to be on urate-lowering therapy. They've got a lot of excuses. It it, 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 it it hampers their lifestyle. They don't want to be tied to blood tests and coming to see you, um, meaning that you're running their disease. They want to run their disease. And they've declared they're horrible at running their disease. And the status quo is that the patient wants to manage their disease on their own. They want to wait until the blank hits the fan and... And they have to come screaming to you because of all their pain. They want to manage their pain and their flares with PRN colchicine, which I don't use in anyone anymore, only under duress and under select situation. Or they want a hefty pile of steroids that they can pop at will when they get a twinge in their joint, which is an they believe to be an impending gout attack. And there's no way of knowing whether that's true or not. Um, and, of course, they don't want to alter their lifestyle in such a way that would actually prevent attacks. Stop alcohol, lose weight, control comorbidities, you know, get rid of the, the provocateurs of gout attacks. So, again, gout is a challenge for all of us. Um, too many of us think we're expert in managing gout when in fact we're not. And the, and the 
data on the number of gout patients that you manage that are taking urate lowering therapy is still really low. It's often less than 50%. In primary care, it may only be 20-25%. The of the patients you manage with gout, the number who actually achieve target, you would say, well, you know, I have them on urate lowering therapy, I monitor them, and they achieve target, you know, most of the time, and the data shows no. It's like 40% at best, maybe 45 if you're a rheumatologist. And if you're not a rheumatologist, primary care, again, it's like 30% or less can achieve target. And I think that uh, this is a gigantic unmet need uh, in society. I mean, there's 1.3 million people with RA. There's 10 million people with gout in the United States. For this reason, I've asked one of our speakers at Room Now Live to address um, you know, what's ahead, what we should be focusing on, what the unmet need is in gout. And that's Professor Lisa Stamp from the University of Otago in New Zealand. Uh, if you follow Dr. Stamp's work, um, she is prolific in her writings and research on gout. Um, she has written a lot on gout management and gout assessment. Uh, and she's going to address the things that you need to know in managing those patients who are not optimally managed with gout, which I, fortunately, I think is a majority of my gout patients. We have to get better at this. Tune in for more QD Clinics. Welcome to QD Clinic. I'm Jack Cush with Room Now. QD Clinic is brought to you by Room Now Live 2024 in Dallas and online. Today's case is your jack inhibitor patient is in the hospital, doctor. What do you want us to do? This is a phone call that you may get like I got two weeks ago. My patient, 62-year-old woman, she's taking methotrexate. Uh, she's on a, a JAK inhibitor, doesn't matter which one. And she is on five milligrams of prednisone. And she's been sort of controlled, you know. Um, you know, always has a CDI score of between, you know, five and 12. And maybe one or two swollen joints. She, you know, doesn't have a, um, she's not in remission by hack score, um, but she's still functioning and she's coming to see you and she's getting follow-up and she's been on these therapies for like more than four years. She's got eight years of rheumatoid arthritis, has so been around the block on medicines and finds that the methotrexate plus JAK inhibitor has given, the, given her the most degree of control. So think about this. She is on methotrexate and a jack, but she's had eight years of disease, which means that she's failed, you know, four or five other biologics and or um, targeted synthetics to get to where she is today. And she's not perfectly controlled, but she's better controlled. You know, this is a difficult patient. This is a patient who's at risk for a lot of bad things. The longer RA goes on, the more inflammation, the more recalcitrant you get, you're more likely to get comorbidities. You're more likely to get side effects of medicine. But is it really from the medicine or was it from the inflammation and the uncontrolled RA that got you hospitalized or infected or whatever? So this patient's in the hospital. She's on prednisone, methotrexate, and a JAK inhibitor. What are the reasons that she would be hospitalized for? Uh, to the top of your list, you probably would say um, an infection. And I think that's reasonable. But as I've always taught, you have to, you know, is it RA or is it the drug? And it's always more likely to be RA and inflammation 
than the drug, but you can, it's hard to disentangle the two. So often the drug, in this case, are you, in this case, everyone's going to hold the jack inhibitor. In fact, you should probably be holding all the drugs because they're all responsible if the jack inhibitor is responsible. But no, we hold the jack inhibitor and then maybe because of this being her third infection, we move on to another biologic or targeted synthetic. I don't know. What kind of infections would she be in the hospital for? Hopefully not a cold, but she could present with either COVID or with uh, influenza. Uh, or even RSV, and all of those certainly being preventable. She could present because of pneumonia, which is the most common cause of, of death, being infection being the most common cause of death, and pneumonia is the most common cause of infectious death in RA patients, irrespective of the therapy that they're taking. So pneumonia would be a real possibility, and again, now you're going to have to differentiate is this just a serious infectious event or could this be an opportunistic infection um, such as TB or fungus, one that might be predicted by the mechanism of action that you're looking to target by your therapies? So again, it's important to know what the possibilities are because when you know the possibility, you know what the response is going to be. Um, I'm a big proponent uh, of vaccination in patients um, with RA. Um, and that include influenza and COVID and RSV, because I think our patients are all at risk. Uh, and, I'm, and specifically patients going on Zoster, I don't wait until they're over 60. I vaccinate them all against Zoster with the recombinant um, uh, Shingrix vaccine. Uh, that works very, very well uh, at all ages, 40, 50, 60, 80, 90. It works equally well and should be used. Uh, to get reinforcement on this, I really strongly recommend that you attend Room Now Live where Dr. Kevin Winthrop, you know, who is a professor of medicine, infectious disease, and rheumatology and all things wonderful. Um, Kevin's from the University of, actually, the Oregon Health Science Center in Portland, Oregon. He's going to lecture on safety issues with the JAK inhibitors, and he's going to address this issue of vaccination with JAKs uh, and other probably other vaccinations while he's at it, and he'll take your questions on the safety issues that may surround JAKs. For instance, are they really at risk for TB and opportunistic infection, or is it only zoster that they're really at risk for? Are they at risk for colonic perforation, just like the IL-6 inhibitors? Yes, they are. What is the liver risk? You know, what is the, are there other risks that well, I'm not yet aware of? Hematologic, liver, anyway, Dr. Winthrop's going to cover this at Room Now Live in Dallas, six weeks away. Register now.